From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, AANP Immediate Past President Sophia Thomas, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. The COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked havoc on many people's mental health. As we ride the roller coaster of infection rates and masking guidelines, how do we also balance navigating the depression of isolation and anxiety as we re-enter society? How do we talk to our patients about it? Beyond this general discussion, there are also pharmacological and genetic elements of this conversation, and I'm really excited to unpack with today's guest. It's my pleasure today to welcome my good friend, psychiatric nurse practitioner, and 2021 AANP Fall Conference Committee Chair, Josh Hamilton. Welcome to NP Pulse. Thank you. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, I'm so glad you're here with us, Josh. And as um, you know, we're we're now about a year and a half into the pandemic and people are now reemerging and reintegrating into society. And there's been a little bit of anxiety about people returning back to work and school. And um, I traveled last weekend with several of the board of directors, members of AANP, and many of them said it was their first time to travel since the beginning of the pandemic. And they had a little bit of anxiety and and we're just kind of unsure about it because it was really unfamiliar and so i thought who better than you to have join me today so we can really talk about this and unpack this this um getting back to work and and starting our lives back so first thing i'd like you to do is introduce yourself to our listeners i i know you so well and you're a great friend and colleague but i i thought oh let's introduce you hey thank you i uh well, I'm Josh Hamilton, and I live in Las Vegas, Nevada for the last 15 years, which is kind of the last place I thought I would end up. Uh, but I'm a psych mental health NP and have been sort of dedicated to that endeavor for the last 17 years. So uh, I often joke that uh, what better place for a psych mental health NP to practice than in the bipolar capital of America. So no two <laughs> days have ever been boring since I lived here. But way back when, I did train first as a family nurse practitioner, and I still maintain that certification and uh, sort of do what all nurses do. I've got multiple irons in the fire. I'm still having a really hard time mastering that one two-letter word, no. Uh, so I do a lot of different things, uh, including clinical practice. Uh, I always tell people that I began to do telehealth before it was necessary or uh, popular. So I've been doing that uh, pretty much specifically uh, in a concierge model since about 2015. And many of my patients, as I've been sort of working with them, have moved away and gone off to college. And so it's become more of a national footprint. I also work for a startup company that only takes care of adults uh, in the telehealth space with anxiety and depression. And then in my spare time, what, what little there is, I actually run an academic program at Rasmussen University out of the Twin Cities area outside of Minneapolis, uh, where we've got campuses across 23 states, um, and we're, we're pretty busy growing the graduate program. So I'm also writing curriculum and working with students who want to become nurse practitioners. So uh, thankfully, I'm a chronic insomniac, and I don't need to sleep very often because I'm busy like all of us. 
Absolutely. Gosh, you can't have any time to sleep when you're doing all of that. Well, you know, I I thought, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, we are talking about people reemerging back into society, integrating back into society. Um, They're they're children are going to be going back to school and would have many patients that are coming um, with some anxiety about the, the return to school and, and things like that. And what, you know, you start off the conversation, what can you tell off, tell us in your experience? Um, what have you been seeing in your clinical practice? I think it's really easy to be empathetic in these situations. I went back for the first time in just under 16 months to the public gym yesterday, and I was really shocked by how few people were practicing social distancing. There was no de-densification going on in there um, and very few masks. And so I found myself a little anxious. And uh, so I, I, I can understand how many people are sort of living a new version of the anxiety we've all sort of developed over the last year and a half or so. Um, I think it's kind of interesting. The world changed and we had to learn how to do things differently and how to live differently. And now that things are opening back up and people are being called to school and to work, uh, to go out and try to live their lives as normally as possible um, under the old model. I think I'm seeing a lot more under this new sort of set of circumstances where a lot of people are still depressed, but more than anything, we're seeing a lot of, I'm calling it re-emergence anxiety. And so, you know, whereas before it was it was more depression and feeling cabin fever, it's a lot of people saying this, I've never ever been this anxious in my life. So the phone is ringing again for a kind of, a slightly different reason. <laughs> and uh, so it's, it's a real problem and it's a universal problem, I think. And, and I agree. And so how do you handle that when you have a patient that, you know, maybe they had a, a history of some depression and now they're experiencing anxiety? How, how do you differentiate this, um, maybe call it situational anxiety um, versus could this be a, an add on to the depression or maybe a chronic anxiety that maybe went unrecognized? I think what's really important for us, certainly, you know, in, in our shoes and wearing the hats that we wear is to recognize that empathy is, is one skill we leverage really well, but the other is to make sure that patients know that it's, it's okay, that this is a normal reaction, and that the powers that be, when you think about how the DSM-5 really operationalizes what constitutes a disorder, anytime someone is not functioning normally and isn't meeting their obligations and wearing their hats or you know achieving the role that they're, they've, they've chosen to try to pursue, then we've got a problem. And so I think part of the conversation is to say at some point it doesn't really matter whether you had a genetic predisposition or whether this was the world as it changed and pressed in on us. At some point we know now, scientifically speaking, that this creates a constitutional problem. This is chemistry and this is structure of the brain and at the heart of it all it's genetics. So I think to normalize that and to explain that it's a bona fide medical issue that can be treated is where I always begin these conversations. Just so patients don't feel embarrassed and they feel like there's hope and that we do have some good evidence to guide what we're about to discuss. And at the end of the day, as a nurse practitioner, my job is to remind patients they own their health care and that my job is to just educate them and give them a lot of options. So that's what I spend a lot of time doing in these sessions is normalizing, destigmatizing, and outlining what we could possibly do to make them feel better. Absolutely. And you, you had mentioned to me a couple things. You, um, when we talked a few weeks ago, you mentioned nature versus nurture, and then you said the pandemic caused epigenetic changes. 
Yeah, that's it's one of my favorite topics. And and I think honestly those sound like big fancy terms and they're kind of hard to wrap your head around, but they're really not that complicated. So when you think about nature versus nurture, and I alluded to this a little bit before, it's almost like cancer. I think we have to admit that we're all born with the genes and the propensity to develop cancers, and that's also true of mental health issues. We all have genes that set us up for, if the circumstances are just right, for cellular communities in the brain to stop communicating effectively or to shrink back from one another. And when that happens, particularly when we are looking at the serotonergic neurons or norepinephrineergic neurons or dopaminergic neurons, um, that really is where depression and anxiety come from. The chemistry that sort of underpins all of those symptoms is remarkably, strikingly similar. So nature, nurture, at this point, it doesn't matter as much what caused it, the long and short of it is that interplay, that epigenetic interplay is, is really a robust effect when you look at changing environments, changing circumstances and situations that actually, at the end of the day, astoundingly produce genetic changes that induce these chemical and structural anomalies. And that truly is where depression and anxiety come from. So I think to understand that at the genetic level, epigenetically, helps you understand where treatment goes. And that is to say, we've got to reset chemistry in the short term, but we also want to really change the brain structure. Structure. We want to get those cells communicating effectively and living in nice little close-knit neighborhoods again. And that's how they reassure each other and calm each other down. Um, so they're just little microcosmic examples of our smaller communities and our populations where we all try to support one another. So I think that particular metaphor works really well. It seems to resonate well with patients and it helps them understand the recommendations. That's great. And I think I probably should have mentioned at the onset that you're also a master psychopharmacologist, which I'm, I'm so proud to be able to say that of you. Hey, I'm proud of that one, too. That was a lot of work, <laughs> but uh, it, it really has informed the way I approach these things. So it, it's a good credential to have. And I think that inspires confidence <laughs> when oh. patients say, oh, he's about to prescribe something. I wonder if he knows what he's doing. I actually uh, most often knock on wood. I do. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I've got you here as my guest. So so, you know, we've got a patient who's got some anxiety and a lot of times we we uh, treat empirically. And, and in a previous podcast, we had actually discussed screening tools that primary care providers could use to either diagnose um, uh, screen for uh, depression and, and anxiety and things like that. So once we've got the patient, you know, diagnosed, oftentimes we want to treat empirically um, first. And so what are what are some of your what is your thought process as you're seeing a patient and, and you're going to prescribe medication to them? What are some things that you think about? Sure. Well, the first I, the first thing I try to ascertain is, you know, what is the patient really seeking here? So listening for a theme, many of them are less comfortable talking about medications first. Some of them would really like to try talk therapy first. And luckily, I have a certification there as well. Some really want a non-Western approach. And there are some fairly well-researched approaches when you think about acupuncture, acupressure, bright light therapy. There are some supplements that have been uh, well-researched and have some scientific validity. So I really try to hear what the patient is asking for first and foremost. And then I'm really glad to hear that we've covered the topic of evidence-based care or our measurement-based care. So really to get some sense of not only the severity of an anxiety disorder or the depression, I mean, it's always nice to have a numerical score, but I think that also helps you recognize within that disorder, 
within depression, within anxiety, what are the features and how severe is each sub-feature? You know, what are the characteristics and what is the lived experience of this disorder like? Because if you are going to prescribe something, if you are going to start with medication, then even empirically, it's important to choose medicine that comports with the model of the disorder. So for me, you know, even if you're just going to be comfortable in the world of the serotonin reuptake inhibitor, what have we got about a dozen to choose from now? And within that whole cluster, we used to believe that if one didn't work, it was pretty likely a fair conclusion that all of them were going to have limited efficacy. Well, it's not true. And so for me, it's, it's sort of important to say, well, if sleep disturbance is part of this problem, if someone has that hamster on the wheel that's running around and won't let them unwind and calm down and get off to sleep, then some of that, um, the spectrum of antidepressants that are less activating, things that uh, hit the sigma receptor in addition to the serotonin system. So that's where Zoloft becomes my go-to medication. If you're looking for a really clean drug, something that has very few interactions and it is very strictly serotonergic, then you probably start with escitalopram or Lexapro. And those are two of the more soothing and less activating antidepressants we have to go to. So I think to the extent that the anxious sleep pattern almost always figures in, you're looking for someone who wants once a day dosing and for someone who really has a hard time unwinding and getting restorative sleep, I think Lexapro and Sertraline or Zoloft are really good choices. Within that though, there are so many other things to choose from. And that's where really thinking about precision medicine and how even you can tailor that approach even a little bit more with just a, a couple cheek swabs becomes a kind of an interesting conversation. Well, that's what I was going to go to with you is, you know, now we have this this genetic testing that's that's available and it's been around for a few years now, but becoming more and more popular. Yet, I still think a lot of people don't fully understand it or or some people may think, well, it's really not within my my scope. I really should probably refer them to psych for that for them to deal with it. But, you know, that's not true, is it? Not anymore. I mean, I think to the extent this is a, an idea and a project that's been around for many, many years, I'm trying to think Mayo Clinic probably had the corner on the market back in the day. And some of us tried it way back then. Um, it, it was it was challenging for a couple of reasons. It was cost prohibitive. It was very expensive. And it was not all of that useful because the report that came back was just obnoxiously long and it was very technical. And so you had it in hand, but unless you had another hour or two to look it over and really try to derive some meaning from it. I don't know how it informed that 20-minute med check. <laughs> mm -hmm. It didn't very often. So you're right, times have changed a lot. Uh, there are four or five major vendors that order this type of testing and, and process it very quickly. I think in terms of utility during the pandemic, um, a lot of us thought, well, this is a challenge, but they really, these vendors really rose to the challenge. We got to the point where you could deploy a kit with just a couple mouse clicks directly to the patient's door. They were able to gather the samples, whether those are cheek swabs or um, saliva samples, you know, in the privacy of their own home. Things went back to the lab. And, you know, it, this is not like the days of the O.J. Simpson trial where a PCR took weeks and weeks and weeks. You're getting results back now in three to five days in some instances. And what, what's nice is that the report, depending upon what vendor you choose, is so intuitive, even the patient can understand it in most cases. So really to look at pharmacogenomic testing now is so commonplace. It's easy to order. Anyone can do it. Uh, the patient isn't inconvenienced or put at any sort of risk in order to get the samples collected. The report comes back electronically and securely. And really what you're studying here 
is, you know, kind of twofold. You're looking at receptor profiles, really where that medicine is going to garage itself on the brain tissue. So how many receptors are there? How, what's the shape? Does the patient express that receptor at all? Really can help you determine sort of of the list of 54 psychotropics that you might use. Maybe there's a shorter list now. And the other is to sort of look at, at liver genetics and liver chemistry and metabolic chemistry. And knowing that uh, at some point that every medicine we give is going to become a waste product that's metabolized by the liver helps you understand whether a patient needs more or less of a given medicine. So just with a couple of, of cheek swabs, you've really got great information about how a, a person is going to metabolize medicines and which medicines are more compatible with their receptors on the brain tissue. The other thing I find is really interesting, Sophia, is that I also order the MTHFR genotype. And without going into the science in great detail, a lot of the consulting I've done in the last year, I have patients who come in and maybe one out of five, two out of five are on the correct medication, but they don't process dietary folate normally. And what the MTHFR gene, if you've got that result in hand, can tell you is that just by taking activated folate, which is a vitamin supplement over the counter, you can supercharge or restart the therapeutic effect of a properly chosen antidepressant for anxiety. So it's really good information to have, and it's, it's affordable and accessible. So I recommend it for anyone who's stuck. If you've tried something and it's not working, this is a really good place to go. And that test can be done in any office, any reference lab should be able to do that for you. Correct. And some really specialize in it. And as I said, a three or four only do that. So when you think about the labs that sort of made their reputation testing for, say, breast cancer genetics, um, almost all of them have spin, spun off into neurology and psychiatry. So anyone who does genetic testing typically offers this panel. So, so we've got um, kind of how to read, and you went over that, but then how to interpret. And can you go into more detail about how one would interpret these tests? So if they, they order a test, um, you said that it's much more simple now. Kind of go over with us, what does is, what is a, a test result look like? Sure, yeah. Every lab sort of has an idea based on how, how their medical pan their panels and their key opinion leaders really wanted to look at these results. But it's so much more graphically driven and symbolic just in terms of if a lab has some secret sauce that they put into these tests, um, a lot of them call it combinatorial genetic testing. And so that can range from results that are clearly classified into red, yellow, and green categories, and it's just what you think about intuitively. So medicines will be put into a green category because those are the most pharmacogenetically compatible, meaning that that's your short list. So not every medicine that appears in that list may be appropriate for your patient's symptoms, but if you were to select from that list, they are more genetically compatible, meaning that patients will tolerate them with fewer side effects, and they're more apt to get responses in, within the dosing range that's published in our literature. In the yellow bin, if you kind of look in the yellow category, the medicines that are listed there, you can use them, but often there's an adjustment that needs to be made. So when you look at things that fall into that moderate gene drug interaction category, um, maybe just by giving more or less of the medication or creating an augmenting effect with a secondary agent becomes a, a magic recipe for that patient. I always tell patients though, because I give them their own results, if there are medicines that are listed in the red category or in the do not use category, that doesn't mean they're necessarily harmful. It means that those medicines are less likely to be effective for patients at the doses that are published in our literature. I had one patient who had a, a result in that category and 
literally we were giving, by the time we gave up on it, I think we were giving three times the published dosage of the medication and it still just wasn't working. It wasn't causing any side effects, but it also wasn't working. So it really can shave off the time it takes to start to get a handle on these symptoms just by knowing where a medicine falls in a genetic compatibility categorization scheme. So some use the red, yellow, green, some use a graphically driven interface. Uh, some of them use symbology to tell you whether something should be raised or lowered in terms of dosing. Uh, so everyone has a different re result report, uh, but they're not the old school, just a bunch of black print on a white page. So I think we've come a long way. And this is a great tool to utilize as we're looking at treating in, uh, patients and, and picking the right medication that would work specifically for them. And and I think that's, that's wonderful. And as we go forward, um, let me ask you this. So as you, you, let's say you've done the test on a patient, you've got them on a medication and the medication isn't working. It would, is that the time that you'd go ahead and check for the MTHFR gene? I usually get that up front. Okay. And, you know, typically I'll say I win more chess games by moving one piece at a time. So often I will start a medicine or I'll decide at follow-up if they're not getting some traction. It's a really good time to repeat those psychometry measurements again to see if you've had any movement, say, in the, the GAD7 or in the PHQ9, the scores on those, those measurement tools. Often you'll see some movement. Um, you really want to try to quantify that. So if you see a decrease of at least 50% in that score, we call that response. And response means you're on the right track. So to really fine tune, you can use that pharmacogenomic information again to say, oh, okay, good. We're getting some traction and now it's safe to explore the full dosing range of your antidepressant. Or now is a good time for us to say the MTHFR gene was abnormal and we have reduced folate uh, folic acid metabolism. So let's get you started on some L-methylfolate, seven and a half to 15 milligrams at bedtime, just to give your brain what it needs to start to produce some of those calm down, feel good chemicals that we talked about. So it's a really good time to see if you've gotten response. And the idea here, Sophia, is to make sure that either you're going to optimize dosing or you're going to add something on, depending upon what symptoms have left to resolve or to respond, you really can then begin to select secondary agents uh, to really tailor in on those pathways and those neurological circuits that need that fine tuning. So that's where you can say, for example, your Zoloft got us some traction and we've maxed the dosage out. Maybe this is where we add some Velazidone, some Vibrid, or maybe we add some Buspirone or some Buspar. It's the closest thing to exogenous serotonin we can come up with pharmacologically. So that's where you fine tune and you really relentlessly work with the patient to drive that depression and anxiety into remission, which are those scores as close to zero as we can possibly get them. Absolutely. And you are, when you're seeing your patients, you're regularly doing a GAD or a PHQ-9 to just test for the efficacy um, of the medication. Absolutely. And what I tell patients is minimally, we're going to try to get those measures every four to six weeks, particularly if we've made significant changes. And the reason that's the magic window, and I think this is important for anyone who prescribes antidepressants to know, it is not about chemical rebalancing anymore. Um, we thought that for a long time, but it never explained that horizon of four to six weeks before the magic happened. What you're doing these days, and we have to recognize this, is that you are actually trying to induce 
reactivation or suppression of a genetic code. There's something going on with a genetic code that's been suppressed or overactivated. That's the epigenetic piece that we began this interview talking about. You're trying to reverse that with an antidepressant, and only when you do that do you usher in a period of cellular regrowth and refurbishment of those brain structures. It takes, when we do this in the laboratory, the magic is it takes four to six weeks on an antidepressant for those cellular structures to begin to grow back together. And that's a genetic-driven process. So it is truly the most artful piece of science I've ever done in nursing to say, here is a very strange, anomalous, almost wound in the brain that needs to be repaired. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't irrigate it. I can't dress it. But by relating properly to a patient in the way that only nurse practitioners can, in my view, and choosing the right medications and being relentless and collaborative in trying to get this thing pushed into remission, you're really healing a wound over the course of about six to eight weeks without touching it, seeing it, or being able to intervene in any other way. And for me, that's the biggest art there is in nursing. So I take a lot of pride in sharing that and knowing that that's the work we're really doing. Well, and it's just so effective. And and I agree. I think we have to let our patients know up front that this isn't something that's going to uh, get fixed overnight. It, it is a process and it's going to take time. And I think, you know, nurse practitioners communicate so well in teaching our patients. And I think that's why our care is very effective. So uh, I think the takeaway here is when we when we are treating our patients, um, be a partner with them, explain the length of time and the process. And um, if they know that we're always there with them and willing to work with them to help alleviate their symptoms and get them back to a semblance of whatever their normal would be, um, I think they're more likely to follow through with the treatment because the other thing is they have to be compliant and take the medication or it's not going to work. Well, and you think about it, it, it's that extra time you spend understanding them and their families and their lives and their unique circumstances and situations and being really upfront and realistic to say, you know, this isn't going to change overnight. And for a couple of weeks, the only thing you're going to get from this medicine are side effects. If you're going to have them, that's all you're going to notice. Um, so I think it's important to just say, I'm here, you know, on those particularly tough days, you need to check in, text me, email me. Um, we can schedule an off schedule visit just to say, you know, this is really hard and this is really challenging and help them recognize that they've got strengths and resources and coping skills that we can put into the toolbox to help them get through that month and a half before the antidepressant really starts to take care of them. Yep, absolutely right. And, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit, Josh, because you know, what you just spoke about, I know you're going to be sharing with us this this fall uh, at our fall conference, which I'm so excited about at the Hollywood uh, Diplomat Resort in Hollywood, Florida. And you are our conference chair. I was so glad to be able to to um, name you conference chair because of your experience and expertise. And we've worked on some great tracks for our nurse practitioners. You know, we, not only do we have um, mental health and everything anyone would ever want to know about mental health, but we're having so many other other tracks, aren't we? Oh, we've got some great topics. So I, I'm really looking forward to getting out into the world. And what is it? September 23rd through the 26th. We'll be yeah. back in person after a really long year and a half in the virtual environment. So, uh, but you're right. This is a really exciting conference just because we've got great in-person sessions. We've got these six top, topical areas to choose from. And you're right. I'm really proud of our mental health track. We've got some wonderful speakers uh, ready to go there. But we've got the business and professional track. 
Uh, we've got a great cardio metabolic track all lined up. We've got a diversity, equity, and inclusion track that I'm really excited about. Some of that's even experiential. Um, and that's a really unique approach to, to trying to take on this really heady, really consequential material. Mm-hmm. We've got a leadership track. Um, and then, of course, our pharmacology track, which has always been really popular, is back. Uh, and is really rich with a lot of great speakers, a lot of great topics. And I think we've got, gosh, when I last counted, over 80 sessions in in the can ready to go. And for those who aren't quite ready to travel, uh, we're doing something interesting. We'll also have an on-demand version of this conference. And anyone who does travel and comes comes to see us in person will also be able to give them access to those sessions they weren't able to attend. So I always feel bad when I go to conferences. It's really hard to choose which of those concurrent sessions to attend. This is one way to see them all and hear them all. And I, I guess I'll, I'll share a little bit that we are going to repackage that for the virtual um offering and we'll actually add some sessions that won't be at the in-person conference. So there are tons of ways to get back in person if you're ready. And if not, don't worry, we've got all kinds of on-demand options for this conference. So it's a really exciting thing. It is. And I'm so looking forward to having nurse practitioners all together. We're going to be able to hug each other and spend time together at this great beachside resort. And I know there's going to be a lot of people, you know, attending who might be a little anxious. That might be their first time traveling. But we'll have you there as our conference chair and and you can provide therapy to everybody that needs it. (laughs) I'll set up a booth. I'll look like Lucy with her psychiatric help. Five cents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, Josh, you know, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. This is fascinating information, and I knew you'd be the expert to call on to help unpack it. What I want everybody to take away from this is it's definitely within the scope of practice of a primary care nurse practitioner. Um, You know, it's certainly our site mental health NPs to do the um, epigenomic testing to really uh, figure out what medications will work best for the patients and really be a partner in uh, in their health care and their mental health care. I agree. And I think it's just so important for those in primary care, having been such a trusted figure in their patients' lives for such a long time, to not shy away. Um, address this. You have every tool in your, your toolbox to do this. Get someone started and then realize that you're not alone. So I think we collaborate quite naturally. So if you're stuck or stumped, then do reach out to your specialty NP colleague. And uh, I think you and I are a good example of that. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I always love to chat with you. Absolutely, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. It's always so fun getting to speak with you. As Josh mentioned, the 2021 AANP Fall Conference is back in person this September at the Diplomat Beach Resort in Hollywood, Florida. Join me and your NP colleagues in person to experience more than 80 CE sessions or participate in the online version of the conference if you'd rather not travel. Either way, this AANP conference has the best opportunity for CE this fall. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. And always be kind, be safe, and be the voice of the nurse practitioner. (laughs) 